Okay, we're going to start with the basics this morning. Uh, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Who can tell me? The birth of Jesus. Good. There was only about two people who knew that, so I'm a little, a little concerned about that. Okay, you're going to have to do better on the next one here. Okay, so, so the birth of Jesus. Let's make sure we don't pass through the Christmas season without saying, okay, what we're celebrating here is the birth of Jesus. Okay, okay I've got a second question for you. How many of you have witnessed the birth of a baby? How many of you have been in the same room when a baby was born? Raise them high. It's a lot of people, right? That's good. Okay, uh, now the last question. I'm not going to make you raise your hands all day. Uh, the last question, how many of you were born as a baby? Okay. Come on, raise them high. Some of you are not raising your hands. <laughs> okay, so our, our little survey here uh, has shown us that birth is a very normal thing, right? I, I did a little research on this. Uh, about 350,000 babies are born every single day in the world. 350,000 babies every single day, which means that already in 2014, something like 135 million babies have been born. We got to have one of those. So we get one out of 135 million. 135 million babies born in the world in 2014 already. So at Christmas, we're celebrating something that on one level is very ordinary, right? Uh, birth is a normal thing. It's a common occurrence. It happens hundreds of thousands of times every day across the world. And yet, at this time of year, hundreds of millions, several billion people worship God and, and praise him. We celebrate the birth of a particular child. We celebrate the birth of Jesus every year at this time because in this very ordinary event of the birth of a baby by a, a mother, in this very ordinary event something extraordinary has happened. The Son of God was born as a human to bring salvation to the world. I mean, that might sound a little bit unbelievable, but that's what the Bible testifies to. That the, God has done something extraordinary in the most ordinary way possible. So let's read the story together and, and discover what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus. Uh, today we're in Luke chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 20. If you haven't turned there in your Bible, this would be a good time to do that. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We've got Bibles in the Purax. It's found on page 1014 of the uh, Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And we've been, this Advent as a church, we've been going through the, the beginning part of the Gospel of Luke to hear how he prepares us for the birth of this child, Jesus. And now uh, the time finally comes where we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So we're going to look at this, uh, Luke's account in, in Luke 2, uh, through three uh, scenes of the birth narrative. In the first uh, scene, Jesus is born. Listen to how Luke tells it. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. 
I think this has to be one of the most understated paragraphs in the history of literature. You read this and you expect, if the Son of God is being born here, you expect more fanfare, and yet Luke tells it so simply and so plainly. But let's look at what he's saying here. This child is born in Bethlehem, which is identified as David's city. And, and that's significant because David was the ideal of an Israelite king. And it's also significant because God had promised to raise up a king like David from David's family line who would uh, reign over his people Israel and bring them back to prominence. So there's a, a note of hope here already. And then God had said through his um, prophet Micah that Bethlehem would be a significant part of this. So Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So with that significance in mind, with a prophecy of, of Micah 5, 2, that, that out of Bethlehem will come one who will be a ruler, and his origins are from of old, with that in our mind, then we read Luke 2, and when we hear that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, well, that's significant then. And, and Gabriel, the angel, had already announced to Mary that her child was going to be king. He was going to reign on David's throne forever. So already we've, we've gotten this significance of Jesus. And now the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in David's city, is further confirmation that this child, Jesus, is actually going to be the king that God had promised to send his people. So we're, we're reading this. We, we learn the significance of David. We learn the significance of Bethlehem. And, and, and we begin to uh, get excited here because Jesus is born in David's city. He's born in Bethlehem. So that means that he is God's king. But by the time you get to the end of this paragraph here, the end of verse 7, we're a bit surprised because this child who's going to be God's great king is born and then put in a manger. Now, I'm assuming that everyone here has seen a nativity scene. If you haven't, just go down Ludington Avenue and a little bit before you get to downtown, there's a big one on the north side there or there's one up here. You can see this. Well, where's Jesus? He's in a manger, right? Well, what's a manger? I've never heard the word manger used in anything other than the birth of Jesus. A manger is just a food trough. It's where you put food and then feed animals out of that. So it's an odd place uh, for Jesus to be, right? So the Son of God not only comes to earth in the most ordinary way possible through the birth from a woman like everyone else, but he's actually born in subordinary circumstances, Joseph and Mary are away from their home. They've been displaced, and there's no space available for them in a guest room, so they're stuck with the animals. The Son of God, born to be king, born in David's city, ends up in a makeshift food bin crib. So what we're seeing here is that in the middle of the, the ordinary, the birth of a child, even in the middle of a, of a subordinary thing being put in a food trough, the extraordinary happens. The Son of God is born. But I want you to notice here how God got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. They were living in Nazareth, some 90 miles north of Bethlehem, when Mary became pregnant. But Caesar Augustus, who's the ruler, the ruler of the Roman world, was ordering people around so that he can better tax them. And in verses 1 through 3, the first verses of our chapter, it looks like Caesar is the one who's in control there. He's, he's issuing decrees, and everybody does what he says. He orders them around. They have to obey. They don't have a choice. So it looks like Caesar Augustus is the one who is powerful. He's the one who's in control of the situation. But who's really in control of what's going on here? 
Well, God is. God is orchestrating events in the Roman Empire so that Jesus, this child, is born in the right place at the right time. And this is a really important lesson for us as we contemplate Christmas. What we learn is that God's in control. Even when we don't understand it, even when it looks like other people are powerful, God is the one who's in control. And that's what's happening here. The, the Roman emperor, he's ordering people around. He's giving decrees. He's displacing Mary and Joseph from their home. He's sending them on this long trip down to Bethlehem. But through all of that, God is accomplishing exactly what he has set out to accomplish. So in line with God's promises, Jesus the king is born in David City. He's born in Bethlehem. So Caesar looks really powerful. He looks like he's in control. But God is the one who's in control. This is like uh, if I'm playing with my kids and I get down on the floor and, and we're wrestling around and I, I make a big deal about how they're getting me and how I can't, you know, can't withstand this and all this stuff. But who's really in control? Well, I am, or at least most of the time I'm in control. Every now and then they catch me off guard. But most of the time I'm in control of the situation. Even if they're pinning me, even if they're on top of me, pinning me to the ground, they only got there because I rolled a particular way and held them a particular way so that it looks like they're the ones who are winning that wrestling match. Well, that's a little bit of what's happening here. Caesar's kind of doing his thing. He's ordering people around. But God is accomplishing exactly what he has set out to accomplish. God's doing the extraordinary through the ordinary, through a birth of a child. And what we learn here is that we can trust God. He's in control, just like he was in control when Jesus was born, orchestrating all those events in the Roman Empire so that Jesus was born in the right place. He's in control today, too. And God, who did extraordinary through ordinary means then, does the same thing today as well. You might not perceive God's hand in all of life, and you might not understand totally what God is doing in your life or what God is doing in the world, but the truth is that he is in control, and he loves us dearly. And the Bible testifies to this again and again. The consistent witness of the Bible is that God is in control. He is sovereign, and he loves us. He wants what is right for us. What that means is that we can trust him. There's nothing that is going to stop his beautiful plan to make all things right. Scene two. Angels pronounce good news to shepherds. Now, has anyone seen uh, Charlie Brown Christmas? Is that too dated? Can you raise your hand just so I know like, who I'm talking to? Okay, good. Most of you have seen Charlie Brown Christmas. If you haven't seen it, you can find it on Hulu. And, and particularly, I want you to pay attention to the dance scenes in there. I get all of my dance moves from Peanuts characters. The, uh, straight legs, st or straight uh, legs, straight arms. Those are the keys. Um, Charlie Brown Christmas, a great show. Go see it. But the pivotal moment comes when Charlie Brown's totally exasperated with all the Christmas plans. Everything has gone commercial. He doesn't like it. And he's so frustrated. All of his plans are falling apart. And in exasperation, he asks, does anyone really know what Christmas is all about? And at that pivotal moment, Linus stands up on the stage and he recites our passage here. So this is the second scene. This is what Linus says. This is what Christmas is all about. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
And of course, Linus says this in a reverential tone. He's by himself on the stage. But, but try to put yourself into this scene a little bit. Imagine what it would have been like to be the shepherds in this scenario. I mean, they're out at night in the dark, carefully watching over their sheep, making sure no wolves or anything else uh, gets the sheep. And suddenly, out of the darkness, this blinding light comes, the glory of God shining all around them. Well, what do you do if you're uh, in a dark room and suddenly someone flips on the lights full bore? Well, you shield your eyes and you give them a dirty look. But, but this is even more terrifying than that. It's just exponentially more terrifying because suddenly an angel of God is there. And, and if an angel of God appears, you fall down on your knees because you are terrified. Uh, in, in the idiom here that the King James that you probably know, has, they, were, they were sore afraid. Or in the biblical idiom, it's they, they feared a, a mega fear. Well, the angels tell him, well, trade your mega fear for mega joy because that's what he's announcing. He's announcing good news for great joy. And this good news that causes great joy is about this extraordinary, ordinary event that we just read about. A baby son has been born, and this baby, he says, is Savior. This baby is Messiah or Christ. This baby is Lord. I mean, those are huge terms for a little baby. A savior, it means someone who comes to, to rescue, to save us. Messiah is, is God's chosen king, his anointed one. Lord is a title of, of sovereign power and control. It's most often used of God himself in the Bible. And what incredible things to be said of a, of a little baby who's right now currently residing in a food bin out with the animals. Now, remember how Caesar Augustus was ordering everyone around in the first couple verses? Well, people had used terms like Savior, Lord, God about Caesar, too. So there's actually an inscription that reads like this. It says, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Now, who's saying these things about Caesar? Well, it's just people. Normal people who probably have some interest in having him like them. So in the face of such claims from humans about this normal person, Caesar, who happens to be empire of the Roman world, this child born in subordinary circumstances who's currently in a food bin, in a manger, receives these accolades and these titles from heaven. Angels coming down and saying, this child is Savior, he is Messiah, he is Lord. What we see here is that God is making a big deal about the birth of his son. Now is the time for great fanfare. So there's understated at the beginning where Jesus is actually born, but now is where the fanfare comes in. The angel comes and proclaims good news, mega joy, that the Savior has been born, the Lord's been born, the Messiah has been born. And this one angel is suddenly joined by a whole army of angels who fill the sky with the praise of God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So God's goodness, his glory is overflowing from heaven to earth. Glory in heaven to God and on earth peace through this son. And what a great moment. But wait a minute. Why do the shepherds get to see all this fanfare? I mean, who were shepherds? Shepherds were just ordinary people. They were kind of at the lower end of the social spectrum. They weren't special people. They were very ordinary, maybe even subordinate, we'd say. So why waste this beautiful angelic pronouncement and this beautiful angelic choir on them? Well, it tells us something about who this child is. 
It's because this child brings good news that causes great joy for whom? For all people, even the lowly, even shepherds, ordinary people, nobodies. And that's the lesson that we learn from the second scene. God's salvation is for everyone. It's for all, even for those who are lowly, even those with no social position. And this is good news for people like us because some of us are really successful, right? Some of us are really clever and all those things, but most of us are just ordinary people. We don't have a whole lot to commend us. We're normal. Well, God's salvation is for us. God shows that he has special concern for those who are kind of overlooked by the world, those who are on the outskirts. That proved true when God chose Mary. She was a, a nobody girl from a nothing town, yet he chose her to bear his own son. And it's evident here when he chooses to send this huge army of angels to proclaim good news to normal, ordinary shepherds. I love the, the juxtaposition between the, the glorious and the ordinary, the extraordinary and the ordinary. It shows us that, that in no way does, does merit come into play here. This isn't something that the, the shepherds deserve. This isn't like the people that you'd expect God to, to send his angels to. These are just lowly, ordinary people. I saw something from earlier this year about a group that went into a, a particular homeless shelter and they transformed the dining room into this like five-star restaurant. And it was really cool. They spent all this time, all this energy transforming this very ordinary plain room, white walls. Uh, they transformed it, you know, put uh, trellis and vines and lights and all stuff into this. Made it look beautiful. Made this, this uh, huge meal with a kind of a filet mignon centerpiece. And, and they had the host dressed up in a tuxedo and all the wait staff were in black tie. And then they, they uh, escorted each homeless resident to their particular seat. And, and they treated them like royalty. And I loved uh, seeing the little video here because you could see that these people that, uh, that they didn't get to experience that before. For the first time, being able to experience the, the caliber of service and the caliber of a meal that, that normally someone would say, well, you know, you don't get to experience that. This is not for you. And this is a, a little tiny glimpse of what the shepherds are experiencing here. I mean, they've just witnessed an army of angels praising God and proclaiming good news to them. The extraordinary breaks through to the ordinary. God's great salvation announced by a choir of angels to shepherds, to those who are in a humble position. So as you contemplate uh, Christmas this year, remember that God's salvation is for everyone. That merit doesn't come into play. This isn't something that we deserve, but God's salvation comes to all of us, regardless of who we are. It is offered to everyone. His salvation is for you. It's for me. Scene three, shepherds respond with joy. So if you've put yourself in the shepherd's position and you've just had this huge angel choir sing to you and pronounce good news, well, you're not going to just sit there and kind of go back to watching your sheep that night. You're going to find out what happened here. So that's exactly what they do. Picking up in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen them, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
And the response of the shepherds is a really good one. I mean, note the, the three things that they do. First of all, they go and see. Well, let's find out if what the angels have said is true. I mean, the, the angels said, no, this is the good news. This is great joy. This child born is in the city of David. He is the Davidic king. He is Messiah. He is Savior. He's Lord. And the angels give them a sign. You're going to find a baby in a manger, a place where you wouldn't expect a baby. And so they go, well, let's go find out if what they're saying is true. So that's the first thing they do is they go and see for themselves. And then, after they go and see for themselves, they get the confirmation of this. They tell what they have seen, and they tell what they have heard. They're telling everyone, listen, angels just showed up to us, and they proclaimed this great news. They said we'd find a baby in a manger, and we found a baby in a manger. And so everyone who hears this is, is amazed. And Mary's hearing this and putting all the pieces together, pondering them in her mind. So first they go and find out for themselves. Then they testify. This is what we've heard. This is what we've seen. And then they, they go back praising and glorifying God. That's the third thing that they do. That they're joining the song of the angels and giving glory to God for his great salvation because now, at last, they've seen the joy of God's salvation. It had been announced to them by the angels. They have now seen it with their own eyes. They've told what they've testified to, and now they glorify God and praise him for what they've seen and heard. And you know, this is the right response for us today, too. Because what's being proclaimed at Christmas is good news that leads to great joy for all people, that, that the Savior has been born, that, that Jesus really is the one that God sent to rescue us. So good news is being proclaimed to us, so, so we've got to take up the same response as the shepherds. We've got to start by saying, well, we've got to go and see for ourselves. Is this really true? Is Jesus really Savior? Is he really the Christ? Is he really Lord? Is this really good news or not? We've got to find out about this Jesus. So, so read the testimony of Scripture. Scripture is full of people who were there with Jesus, eyewitnesses who, who walked with him, who saw him do miraculous things, who heard his teaching, who saw him die on a cross, and then who saw him alive again, resurrected, and who saw him ascend into heaven. And these people who saw this and who heard Jesus, those who encountered Jesus, they gave their life for it. So, so look at Scripture, find the testimony of Scripture, and find out that this is what's really true of him. And then go talk to Christians today, too. Find out how they have experienced that this is really true. Find out what they've discovered. But whatever you do, don't, don't just kind of shrug your shoulders and move on. Saying, okay, well, that's an interesting story. That's a nice story. You've got to find out about this Jesus thing. It's really, really important. So go and see for yourself. Find out for yourself who Jesus is. And then once you've discovered who he is, well, then what? You go and tell others. And this is what I've discovered about Jesus. This is what I've heard. This is what the Bible says. This is what I've seen. This is how I've experienced it, discovered it myself. So you tell others about this. Uh, Luke, who wrote the account that we just read, uh, he wrote this book and the book of Acts. He loves to talk about people who have seen Jesus testifying to him. You see Jesus, you experience him, you discover who he is, and then you tell others about him. Luke loves doing that. And that's the role that we have too. Those of us who have discovered that Jesus really is Savior, Messiah, Lord. He really is the source of good news and great joy. Well, then we've got to tell other people what we've seen and heard. So find out for yourself. And once you've discovered who he is, tell others about it. And then live your whole life praising God and glorifying him. This, this really is the posture of the life of those who have found uh, life in Jesus. It's, it's glorifying God and praising him 
all the time. Not just gathering on Sunday mornings and praising and worshiping. It's, it's really important. It's really vital for us to do that together as a church. But really, every moment of our existence is to be lived worshiping God and giving Him honor and giving Him glory and giving Him praise because He's so good. He's worthy of all of that and more. So here's what we see in Luke 2. God brings the extraordinary down to the ordinary. Or, or put it more pointedly, heaven comes to earth in Jesus. I mean, that's the truth of what we discover as we hear Luke's account here. It's what this miraculous birth of Jesus is all about, that the Son of God is born on earth. So it's the extraordinary wrapped up in the very normal and ordinary. So in heaven, God is glorified, and that overflows, and and on earth, peace comes through this child. Heaven comes to earth in Jesus. Now, why? Why did Jesus come? I want to read a little story that that I think is a, really shows the, the logic of Christmas. And, and uh, at our college, my former college president used to read this to the students every year. I think it's worth repeating. Some of you will have heard this. Uh, Paul Harvey's story, The Man and the Birds. So listen for the logic of Christmas here. The man to whom I'm going to introduce you is not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men. But he just didn't believe all the incarnation stuff that the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay at home, but that he would wait up for them. And so he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another and then another, sort of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window, But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm and in a desperate search for shelter had tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. So quickly he put on a coat, galoshes, and tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds did not come in. He figured food would entice them, so he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lighted, warm doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except into the warm-lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I'm a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, 
he thought to himself, and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste Fidelis, come all you faithful. Listening to the bells, pealing, glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. God loves us. That's what it amounts to. God loves us so much that he wants us to, to know him. Christmas is such good news because God wants a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know the joy of his salvation and be able to, to be his children and to worship him rightly. And it's so hard for us because of our limitedness and because we are such finite creatures to actually be able to understand who God is and, and what he is asking of us and that he does love us. And, and matched to that, that finited, limited perspective, on top of that, we're so skeptical and so leery of anything that we don't really understand. So it's so hard for us to understand God. And so God sent his own son the extraordinary in the most ordinary way possible, being born as a little baby from a mother, the extraordinary in the ordinary. Why? So that we could know him, so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could be his children. Here's how the Bible puts it, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Those who have seen Jesus have seen God. God sent his own Son that we could know him and have a relationship with him. Here's the message. Rejoice, be filled with joy, because heaven comes to earth in this baby Jesus. Please pray with me. Oh God, speak again the, the glorious mystery of a child born like every other child, and yet the Son of God the King, the Savior, our Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.